Psalm 115. Listen to God's word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of their hands. They have a mouth, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all, the, all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear in the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He has blessed us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. And may you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The, do, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. All men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 10. We are completing that chapter, reading verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather in your presence now to hear your voice, to hear you speak to us, we do give thanks for all that you have revealed. You have spoken once to us, and you continue to speak today by your Spirit. And so lead us into all truth. We ask that you speak, for your servants are here to listen. 
Amen. This week I read an old transcript. It is actually episode 61 of Ira Glass's This American Life. It was an episode about fiascos. That is when things go wrong, but not just a little bit wrong, really, really profoundly wrong. The opening story was about a fiasco that took place in a small town in the Appalachian Mountains. It was a small southern city, but it was the home of a college. And a lady in the town had a dream and a passion to pull off a play, a locally sourced play. She wanted the locally sourced play to be Peter Pan. And so she recruited all the actors, and then somehow, despite having some cloudy credentials herself, she convinced the local college theater to support her and endorse her in doing this. There was months of preparation. Lots of money went into it. The whole community was involved in building elaborate scenes, and there were even rumors that in 1973, they had obtained these flying trapezes from New York, from Broadway, and were bringing them to their humble town, and that actors would be trapezing across, flying around. Everyone was excited. It was the stir. Jack Hitt, he was a 10th grader at the time, sophomore in high school, and this is what he said about it. He said, what you have to understand is that everybody in this sort of community understood that there was certainly a sort of air of everyone reaching beyond their own grasp. He understood that they were not qualified to do it, but everybody was excited because they were going to do something beyond themselves. Every actor was sort of in a role that was just a little too big for them. But opening night, everyone from a 10-mile radius crowded into the theater. They all knew someone who was playing a part, and it felt like they were on the verge of greatness. Just like when someone takes a risk to do something just beyond themselves, you can find greatness. Peter Pan was certainly going to be this, they thought. Play gets off to a rough start. If you've seen it, you know Peter Pan flies in through the window, and there are three children there in the bed, and he sprinkles some magic dust and says, everyone can fly. With the magic dust, everyone can fly. Suddenly, the three children are jerked out of the bed, rather abruptly and awkwardly, and they are then hanging there in midair, uncomfortably. The smallest of them begins to contort and spin, and there was no controlling it, and as he goes up in the air, the spin becomes bigger and bigger, and he finally crashes into the wooden wardrobe where he drops down to the floor. It's a small town, so you can imagine that everyone was fairly forgiving. They knew that this was not a professional event, and they were willing to overlook it, but obviously everybody was already uncomfortable. Unfortunately, it didn't get any better. Captain Hook came out in the next scene, and when he uh, threw his arm, his hook came off and hit an elderly lady in the front row in the stomach. There was another flying fiasco where the children hit the stage rather hard, not coming down at a gentle 45, but dropping almost from the ceiling. The small town began to lose its graciousness at this point. But this was when the director decided to do something unusual. She wanted to break down what is known evidently in theater circles, I'm not an expert, but the fourth wall. 
It was common in play acting, obviously, uh, uh, evidently in the 1960s and 70s, but the fourth wall was what existed between the actors on the stage and the audience. And so the actors would actually end up in the audience engaging with people. And so the fourth wall was coming down. What happened is that the Indians were to drop rope ladders from the ceiling and then descend from the rope ladders. One of the young boys, who was also a sophomore in high school, slipped and fell 20 feet. He landed on his feet, but he sprained both ankles, and he went into the fetal position crying. He's wailing. Someone calls the EMTs. The play is trying to go on, but the crowd at this point had had too much. The firemen enter the room to rescue the crying boy, and the play came to an awkward halt and stop, and everyone left. It was a fiasco of epic proportion. Just when they thought they were going to reach greatness, that they were going to do something together, that the whole community was going to celebrate Everything fell apart. And what we've seen in Corinth is something very similar. A locally sourced church that was planted by the Apostle Paul, established, and then Paul leaves, and they run off under their own steam and in their own direction. For 10 chapters, we've seen the Corinthians run off with the gospel, the gospel preaching the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And they took that gospel and they accommodated it to Greco-Roman philosophy, Stoic and Cynic philosophy, and they produced their own compromised and syncretized gospel in which they believed. And they had local leaders who were evidently wealthy and well-educated men taking the church in the wrong direction. They produced a deformed and deficient version of Christianity, and it was a fiasco. Ultimately, the congregation had to revolt against it, and they write to the Apostle Paul a list of concerns saying, please help us. We are in a mess. Their local leadership was off the rails. One of the main controversies that we've seen is a very difficult one for us to understand. It runs actually from chapter 8 to chapter 10. Over the last three to four weeks, we've been working with this controversy. And the controversy that was causing such a fiasco here in Corinth, the making a mockery of the church, was the controversy about eating meat sacrificed to idols. There were some in the congregation who said that it was no problem to enter into a temple where it would be common to be invited for a birthday or anniversary celebration or important occasion, and they said because the idol is no true God, it is all right for us to participate in the sacrifice and eat the meat. Paul has to address this, obviously a major community-dividing issue over chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. In chapter 8, what we saw is that he says, you must consider the weaker members of the community and what their needs are. Those who are formerly idol worshipers, what are they going to think? In chapter 9, he goes on somewhat what seems like an excursus and says, you need to use your freedom not just to serve yourself. You may be free to do that, but you shouldn't just serve yourself. You should think of others as well. And then in chapter 10, last week we saw that he calls down Old Testament examples of not being involved with the presence of a false god. And he says, no, you cannot eat the idol meat. And so now, at the end of chapter 11, he will close down his argument. The Corinthians were arguing this. If you look with me in verse 23, all things are lawful. 
You see that the ESV puts that for you in quotations, and that is their way of signaling that this was the slogan that the leaders in the community were using who wanted to eat the meat sacrificed to idols, that all things are lawful. And Paul then retorts, but not all things are helpful. And then once again, all things are lawful. And he retorts, but not all things build up. And Paul comes back with his own slogan at the end of the chapter, where he is attempting to draw the church back into line with the gospel. And it's a very famous verse in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. So that the slogan that drives the church is not all things are lawful, but rather Paul is saying all things for the glory of God. This is where he wants the church focused. And that it is the glory of God and a community striving after that glory that avoids the fiasco. That if we give in ourselves to all things just being lawful, if we give in to just pursuing knowledge, if we give in to just pursuing our freedom, we'll become a fiasco just like this in Corinth. It will be a mess. It will be a mockery. It will be our own undoing. And so Paul is calling us out of that local fiasco to focus on the glory of God. And so the question for us this morning is how exactly do we glorify God? What does Paul say that a life lived unto the glory of God looks like? For those who have been intersected by the grace of God, and the grace of God has interrupted our lives, and we've been saved by him, not because of anything we've done, and now we're to render our lives for God because of the grace, of the grace that he's given to us, what does that life look like? There's two things that we see here in the end of chapter 10. But the first is this, is that we live for the glory of God when we are free to enjoy God's good gifts. Paul's going to make two arguments here, and this is the first one, that we live for God's glory when we're free to enjoy God's good gifts. Now, one of the questions that arose inside of the eating meat sacrificed to idols was, can I eat the meat sacrificed to an idol in a private home? Okay, it's a nuanced question. Paul had said, no, you cannot eat meat sacrificed to an idol in the presence of the idol, in the temple. But then I want to look, you to see how he answers this question, can I eat meat sacrificed to an idol that I go and buy in the local grocery store? Because, friends, this is just simply how you obtained most meat. Most meat in Paul's day was gotten through the temple, it was sacrificed there, and then it went to the local meat market and could be bought. And some people in the community were saying, no, because it was sacrificed to an idol, you can't eat it. But follow with me in verse 25. Paul says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So Paul's prohibition here is you cannot eat meat in the presence of a false god. You don't go to the temple, is what he's saying. But if you buy that meat in the meat market, go dig in. Enjoy it. Do your best barbecue with it. He's giving you the freedom to engage it to dive in and enjoy God's good gifts that he gives to his creatures. And this is a profound statement about what Paul is, with what Paul's saying about God's creation and how we're to engage it. And for many centuries in the Christian church, there's been some sense that God's creation is actually evil and that if we enjoy it, we get ourselves in trouble. 
And that's not Paul's stance at all. Look how he then answers. He quotes from Psalm 24, verse 1. In verse 26, he says, For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That all things inside the creation are God's created things, His gifts that He entrusts to our care for us to enjoy. And through those things, we are ultimately to enjoy God Himself. The problem is not the things of creation. It's what we do with the things of creation. That's what Paul understands, that the problem is not the meat. It's what gets done with that. And friends, that's what we do with God's good gifts. Instead of serving him through them, we use them for our own ends. And Paul says, yes, go and eat, enjoy, lay claim to the freedom that God gives you. This is what you should do. This is good and right. The only qualification here that Paul puts on enjoying the good gifts is that we are to enjoy those gifts with thanksgiving. If you follow down into verse 30, he says, If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? But Paul is saying, yes, you are to engage the meat with thanksgiving, directing your praise to God as receiving this from his hand. He says something very similar if you'll turn with me in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 4. He's instructing Timothy here, and in verse 3, he's speaking of some opponents who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." And you see his logic here once again, that God made good gifts for us to enjoy, and that the qualification to enjoy them is to give thanks to him for them, and then use it appropriately and in the moderation that he commends to us. But that all that God gives, all that God made, is to be appreciated and taken in, and that there is no super spirituality in abstinence. And that's what many coming out of kind of a quasi-Gnostic worldview, the beginning of that, who were denying the physical world were saying, is that you need to shun the physical things of life. Paul says, no, lay claim and enjoy God's good gifts. This is the first way that we give glory to God. And it's important for you to see that Paul is talking about very tangible things So oftentimes as Christians, when we talk about the glory of God, we think about spiritual activities and duties, important things like worship or reading our Bible or saying our prayers. But Paul is saying, if you want to glorify God, go dig into a great meal. Go drink something really fine and give thanks to God for it. Know that it comes from him. Thank him for all of his creativity and the beauty and the goodness and the bounty that he gives us in his grace. It's the first way that Paul is saying to glorify God. Many people will ask, well, how exactly do you do that thanksgiving? There's a southern tradition that oftentimes gets confused. There's the blessing before the meal. I grew up with the blessing. Lord, make us thankful for these and all our many gifts, and I can't even tell you the rest of it. It was said so many times around my table, and it was said with such speed that I don't even know it anymore. And friends, that habit that developed came out of a good place. 
It ultimately came out of trying to respect what the Bible says about giving thanks. Sanctifying our food with prayer and thanksgiving. And friends, so is part of that life that responds to the grace of God and gratitude and sees everything that we have as gift from God. Give thanks for your food. Rejoice in it. Say a prayer that's meaningful and profound. Don't repeat those same 12 words or whatever they are. Give thanks to God with a whole heart and enjoy with freedom. Second piece, though, about how exactly we glorify God is Paul is going to nuance that, and he sets that argument about our freedom inside of a larger principle, that we live for the glory of God as we seek the benefit of our neighbor. And many people struggle here to follow Paul's argument because he seems to say things that work crosswise against one another. The larger frame of these verses from 23 down to 11, chapter 1, is set inside of this context of pursuing the glory of God by benefiting our neighbor. Follow with me in verse 24. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And so he says this at the head of the passage, and then you're going to find that he puts it at the end. And so he's bookending the entire passage saying, this is what everything here is about. But if you follow with me, then in verse 28 through 29, or excuse me, not in 28, 29, uh, through 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is explaining here that we are to have this pattern to our lives that follows the way of Jesus, which is the way he seeks. That is that he doesn't use his freedom to his own end, to serve himself. But rather, our Lord Jesus used his freedom to be a servant, and that was where he found his glory and his greatness. It was not in doing what he could, and he didn't regard his equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, dying on a cross. That was Jesus' greatness. And Paul is saying, inside of your freedom, remember that your freedom is never to just serve your own interest. Yes, you are free, but you're so free that you can set aside your own advantage and you can serve those around you. Now, the controversy where Paul says you're going to limit your freedom is around very specific circumstances. If you follow in verse 28, he says, but if someone says to you, this meat has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Okay? So if you go to an unbeliever's home and he offers you a plate of food and says this meat was sacrificed to the God in the temple today, Paul says you should abstain at that point. And then note what he says. been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. So Paul says if someone brings it up, that this has been sacrificed to an idol and you're in their private home, then you don't partake if they then think that you're going to be participating in the sacrifice they made to their God. That would mislead them. And so Paul says, at that point, you abstain. But he says, if nothing comes up, eat away. And friends, this is the pattern of the Christian life. 
where we're seeking the advantage of our neighbor, where we're seeking their best interest. So we can use our freedom to set aside our freedom. That that's how free we are in Jesus, that we don't need it. We don't have to have it, even though we can lay claim to it. This is how Paul would work us, work on us, and he's pressing the principle that he hopes to change the substance of the discourse here in Corinth, where people's primary orientation is just what were my rights, and what can I do, and what can I get away with? And Paul says, no, you need a cross-shaped moral vision, not just concerned with your rights, not just concerned with what you can do, what are your freedoms, but rather with what serves those around you. Consider their needs. It's a very contextual, specific argument. Several months ago, I received a call from a young pastor in another part of the country. He has been working in the church for roughly a year, and it's been a tough go for him. Early on in his pastorate, he decided there were certain things going on in the church that they had been doing for years upon years as an old established church, and he decided that those things were wrong. He took a stand on them out of principle and conviction, and then gradually in the months since then, his relationship with that church, as you may guess, has deteriorated. It's his first pastorate, and so he called asking for some advice as to what I would do in his situation. And so I was just gaining some of the history to understand exactly what had happened. How had things gotten so sideways? And he said, well, they were doing this and this, and I just couldn't stand for it. I asked him, so what did he do? He said, well, I put my foot down. I said, do you think that was the wisest thing? (laughs) After several decades of, of these traditions, was that the most loving thing to do? He said, that didn't matter. It's about what's right. She said, friend, you're going to have a hard time of it. (laughs) And I understand, even if the church is wrong, which I don't think they necessarily were, but even if the church were wrong, you didn't go about this in the right way. That you're not to just use your freedom and your knowledge to bash people over the head and to tell them where all their grandfathers and grandmothers have been wrong in this church. You are to love them into the truth. You are to love them into knowledge. You are to be patient and forbearing with them. And if that sounds familiar, it's because where Paul is going, just two chapters away in chapter 13, that the Christian community is one defined by love, not seeking our own advantage, but loving others and being patient and pastoral. And this is what it means to glorify God. It is to take on the example of Jesus holding on to those around us and holding on to God. And yes, that puts you in the strange shape of a cross. And it's right in that uncomfortable moment where you're living for the glory of God. It's Paul's argument that that's the way you avoid a fiasco. That's the way you avoid a mess in church, is to stay focused on that glory, giving thanks to God, enjoying your freedoms, and then always doing so in the context of serving your neighbor. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help, that we be a church, a body that glorifies you, and that we know the great freedoms that are ours in Jesus Christ and all that you give us, that we enjoy the earth and all of its fullness, your good gifts, and may we do so with thanksgiving. And Lord, may we always be willing to lay down our rights to serve others around us. Give us the wisdom to know when to do so. Help us to tease that out. We ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.